0: The National Archives podcast series, Australia in War and Peace, 1914 to 1919, presented by Jatinda Mann. As some of you might be aware, today's actually Anzac Day, so it's actually quite appropriate that I'm giving this talk today, quite fortuitous. And for those of you who don't know what Anzac Day is, um, it's a National Day of Remembrance in Australia and New Zealand um, that broadly commemorates all Australians and New Zealanders who have served and died in all wars, conflicts and peacekeeping operations. The Australia in War and Peace 1914-1919 Research Project is a major collaborative um, project between the Menzies Centre for Australian Studies at King's College London and the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade in Australia. The ultimate goal of the project is to produce a volume on documents on Australian foreign policy on War and Peace 1914-1919. to The publication will follow the model of the previous volume that the Menzies Centre worked on, Australia and the United Kingdom, 1960-75, to which consisted of painstakingly selected, historically significant Australian and British documents. In this talk, I will outline the main features of our research project and explore the research process. So just to start off with, just giving you a bit of an idea of um, the key members of the project. We have Professor Carl Bridge at King's, who's the director of the Menzies Centre and the professor of Australian history in the Department of History at King's. He's the head of the British end of the project and will be a book and section editor of the volume. Then you have Dr David Lee, who is in Australia. He's the director of the historical publications and information section at the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, or DFAT. So he's the head of the Australian end of the project and the book and section editor of the volume as well. Then there's myself. I'm a postdoctoral research fellow on the project and I'm in charge of the day-to-day running of the British end of the project, chief liaison with the Australian end and book and section editor of the volume as well. Then we have Associate Professor Frank Bongiorno. He's at the Australian National University. He will be a section editor of the volume. And last but not least, we have Bart Zielinski, who is a research assistant on the project. So he'll be responsible for assisting myself in the running of the project and carrying out research and proofing and editing. So that's the key members. Now I'm going to move on to kind of discuss some of the key themes and chapters within the volume. This is half of them. So we start off with the outbreak of war, which is perhaps quite obvious, recruitment, conscription and its aftermath, the Dardanelles Commission, which looked at the Gallipoli campaign the administration of the AIF, the Australian Imperial Force, finance and loans, labour, commodities and shipping. And then we have Japan and the Pacific, Versailles, demobilisation and repatriation. And then we have quite an overarching kind of chapter working in the imperial system, which will include um, the uh, establishment of Australia House, the Australian High Commission, intra-imperial collaboration and discussions regarding double income tax, etc., So, yeah, that one actually is quite an interesting one, and it's actually one I'm responsible for editing. Yeah, unfortunately, it's kind of become the default chapter. If anything doesn't belong in the others, they seem to be dropped into this one, which is challenging. Um, But, no, it's at the same time quite interesting. So, moving on to publicising of the project. Um, We've already presented papers on the Dardanelles Commission, recruitment, conscription, and its aftermath, and Versailles. We have also given papers on an overview of the project at numerous prominent venues in both Australia and the UK. Furthermore, the British end of the project presented papers on various themes at a research symposium held at the Menzies Centre at King's in late February 2013. Okay. So just to give you a bit of an idea of the uh, timescale of the project, we are intending to publish the volume of Documents on Australian Foreign Policy on War and Peace in 2015, um, alongside a hard copy of the book, a subsequent online version will also be made available so as to maximise accessibility to institutions, scholars, students and other interested individuals all across the world. Actually, I might just go back actually and just add just a brief point about the chapters and the themes. I mean, some of them are chronological and some of them are thematic. And that's something actually that we kind of... Um, well, I think we've fairly settled on the structure, but yeah, it is going to be a mixture of a generally a chronological approach, but within that you will have some thematic chapters. So, just wanted to make that quick point. Okay, so what I'm actually going to move on to now is discussing um, the research process. I should begin by saying that I will be concentrating on the research process of the British end of the project, as this is one that I'm most familiar with and was responsible for shaping. However, I will still nonetheless mention the Australian end, particularly when I come to talk about the benefits and challenges of a major collaborative research project. So when I started off my involvement in the project, I began by kind of doing some background secondary reading, which might not be a surprise to some of you. I um, consulted key secondary sources on Australia and the First World War. So these provided me with useful material, I'm sorry, useful historical context, as well as an idea on the approaches... Perspectives that the major scholars had taken on the subject already. I also consulted their notes bibliography to determine which primary sources they had looked at. So through this, I was able to produce a list of primary sources to consult. I was extremely fortunate to have a preliminary list of archival highlights for the project, which had been produced by one of my colleagues at the Menzies Centre for the research proposal we had pitched to King's and DFAT. This provided a useful starting point, however it was very basic and quite often only had series or agency references as opposed to individual files. So together with my secondary research and just a lot of detailed research on online catalogues I was able to flesh out this list and make it much more extensive. The current list we have of British primary sources to consult for the project is unrecognisable from the original archival highlights one that I received and it has changed over time. So I had this list, what did I I do next? One of the strengths of our research project is the sheer wealth of archival research that has been carried out, both in Australia and in the UK. This is obviously a hallmark of the nature of the project, but I still wanted to highlight the range of archives and libraries that that have been consulted for the project in both Australia and the UK. Although the majority of both the Australian and British research has been carried out at the National Archives of the two countries, a considerable amount has also been conducted in other archives and libraries. Starting off with Australia, we looked at the National Archives there, the National Library, the Australian War War Memorial, the Australian Defence Force Academy, ADFA, and the Australian National University Archives. In the UK, we looked at the National Archives here, the British Library, the Little Heart Centre, for Military Archives, the University of London Library, the Parliamentary Archives, the Imperial War Museum Archives, the Bodleian Library in Oxford, the Churchill Archives Centre in Cambridge and last but not least, the National Library of Scotland. Um, So I'm sure it will be quite clear to you that we have tried to cover as many bases as we possibly can. And just to give you even more depth, I mean, these are some of... Actually, these are the personal papers that we consulted in the UK. So we have key kind of military and political figures. So the Hamilton papers, Robertson papers, um, Kitchell, Ashmead Bartlett, Bonalore, Donnie, Asquith, Harcourt, Milner, his wife, Violet Milner, Hankey... Ayrshire, Fisher, Churchill, Rawlinson, Amory, Lord George, Hague, Godley, Edmonds, Birdwood, Long, Balfour, and Northcliffe. Actually, even some kind of media figures actually came in in reference to Northcliffe, who had quite a lot of political influence as well. So we have really tried our best to look look at as many diverse range of sources as possible. So where we could, we took digital photographs of any useful material that we came across, The advantages of this are manifold. It is cheaper, you can check the quality of the photo instantaneously, and it is easy to transfer research to different members of the research project. The majority of small archives I visited in the UK even actually allowed um, digital photography, although they charged a small fee for a daily permit. Um, This slide here just gives you an example of a document that i photographed, actually here at the, um, the National Archives, it was in a um, correspondence series of the Colonial Office, and as I'm sure we're quite clear apart from the shadow at the bottom, is, it's, you know, it's fairly, fairly legible, um, and when we actually put them out on an A3 sized paper, which we have to do for marking up, I have to say it's very clear, great to work with, um, so yeah, there's no need to photocopy. This kind of leads me on to kind of, you know, you've kind of taken all these photos, what do you do with them? the importance of keeping lists. So this might seem a rather obvious point, um, but I still feel it is an important one to make. After my initial list of British primary sources to consult, I had another on the documents that I had consulted and then a third and fourth on the documents that I had photographed and photocopied, as might be the case. To keep things under control, I have the above four spreadsheets for the National Archives and another four for other archives and libraries. So. This is quite similar to the other spreadsheet that I had, but the difference is um, you have – that's probably the same up to there – but here you have the document title. So that would be the specific document within a file, page numbers if you had any uh, total number of pages. And this is a key one, um, chapter in DAFP volume. So that's the, the volume that we're working on, the documents on Australian foreign policy. And this is where we'd kind of you know, decide where did that document fall in, in terms of the chapters. And though it doesn't show it here. The notes here would actually be quite a useful column as well, where I'd put, well, we would put, um, if something was particularly highly significant. Um, so when it comes to actually the stage we're at now, printing out uh, material to include in the volume, we start off with the highly significant in the last column, and then we kind of see, you know, if there's enough there. If not, we'll look at other stuff. So all about Excel. Actually, so I just wanted to give you an example of actual documents that we did think were particularly significant and we'll probably make the cut in the volume. So the following are examples of historically significant documents that will most likely be included in the published volume. These documents are taken from the three sections that I'm responsible for editing, recruitment, conscription and its aftermath, finance and loans and working in the imperial system. So this is the first one. It's an extract from the minutes of a meeting of the War Cabinet. In early 1917, and it's taken from the, the National Archives. Um, there still remains a large reserve of manpower in Australia. In May last, the Commonwealth Government held out hopes of a sixth Australian division being raised, but were not sanguine of being able to maintain it in the field. The result of the referendum on compulsory service, however, has not only falsified these hopes, but has led the Government to question the feasibility of maintaining the five existing divisions in the field. From the figures given in Table 2, it appears that it, should be, that it should be feasible to raise a sixth division and maintain adequate reserves for all six divisions and the mounted Division in Egypt. And one of the reasons I chose this document is, I think it's quite clear that the British government was quite frustrated um, with the Australian government. And the context of this was you had a referendum on compulsory service in um, Australia. Actually, we had two, and this is actually in between the two, and they both failed and you didn't actually have Australia introducing compulsory military service, as you did have in Britain, in Canada, and in New Zealand. But yeah, I think it's quite clear from this document, the British government was quite frustrated, but at the same time, it didn't really care how they got the troops, they just wanted the men. So according to their figures, which I'm not quite sure how they worked out, but yeah, they felt that Australia could still supply more men than it had already done. So just giving you another example this is a telegram from Law, who was the Secretary of State for the Colonies at the time, to Monroe Ferguson. Uh, Ronald Monroe Ferguson was the Governor-General of Australia. And um, the interesting thing about the Governor-General at that time is that he was not only the representative of the British Crown in Australia, he was also the representative of the British Government in Australia. So the... You know, I mean, you might have to kind of think about that just for a sec to kind of make the distinction, but so he was actually wearing two hats. He not only was the head of the Australian government, um, the head of state, he was also the representative of the British government. So, in, you know, today you'd have a British High Commissioner in Canberra. At that point, there wasn't one, which was an interesting, well, interesting two hats to wear because there were situations where those conflicted, um, those two roles. And uh, actually kind of looking at his correspondence, is quite fascinating to see how he kind of changes from the beginning to end. So I would actually argue he kind of turned native towards the end, and actually, which is quite interesting seeing correspondence at the beginning when he kind of just arrived in Australia and and at the end. But anyway, going to the document, this is also um, here taken from the National Archives. The Agent General for New South Wales has represented on behalf of his government strong objections on constitutional grounds to adhering to agreement between Commonwealth and states and urges that New South Wales should not be denied access to English market on account of non-adherence. His Majesty's Government do not consider it desirable to express opinion on constitutional issue and appear to have no alternative but to inform Agent General for New South Wales that an application from the Government of that state for permission to borrow in London will be considered by Treasury on its merits. So the reason I chose this document was um, was quite... I think it kind of encapsulated the difficult position the British Government was being put in in the sense that not only did he have the Commonwealth Government in Australia asking for assistance in raising uh, loans in London for the war. But you also had the New South Wales state government doing the same. And um, the Commonwealth criticised the British government for assisting New South Wales. New South Wales accused the British government of favouring the Commonwealth. So it was kind of this triangular relationship. And it was one that the British government did not want to be put in. But, you know, as it's made clear in this document, it was constitutionally obligated to assist New South Wales, you know, even if the Commonwealth wasn't particularly happy about that. So yeah, it's quite a fascinating one. And last but not least... This is an extract from, and this is a bit of a mouthful, Correspondence Between the Secretary of the Association to Protest Against the Duplication of Income Tax Within the Empire. A bit of a long-winded title, and I haven't attempted to work out what the acronym is, but it gets its point across. Um, to A.D. Steele Maitland of the House of Commons, and he was actually in charge of a committee which dealt with issues of this type. Um, so, yeah, this is also from the National Archives. Double income tax within the empire is unjust, inequitable, and contrary to imperial interests that it will of necessity materially restrict and penalise trade and investments within the empire, that in the interest of the unity and development of the empire, it is essential that such steps should be taken by the imperial government, as will enable immediate relief to be given. And what struck me about this document is, this is actually a British organisation, grassroots organisation, which was actually lobbying for the abolition of double income tax, and on the face of it, you'd think the issue would be one that the pressure would come from outside and to the metropole, but this is an example of pressure coming from within. And obviously there were particular reasons for that, but you know, I still think it's, uh, it's quite significant, um, just to show that the British world at this time was not a kind of one-way process, it was a two-way process, from the centre to the periphery, as you could say, and, and vice versa. So those are some examples of documents which will probably make the cut in the volume. Um, What I'm going to do next is talk about some of the benefits and challenges of collaborative research projects. There are many benefits and some challenges to undertaking collaborative research projects. I have focused on two benefits and key challenges here. Starting with the benefits, having an Australian and British team as we do in the Australian War and Peace research project enabled us to undertake such a large project in itself. In theory, though it would have been possible for either end to carry out the project by themselves, this would firstly have been considerably expensive, and secondly, you would not have had the local expertise at both ends which can make a difference in large research projects, especially when you have a deadline, which we do. Furthermore, although there has been considerable scholarship written about Australia and the First World War, no one has conducted rigorous research in both the Australian and British archives. This is another strength of our project, and through this you get the whole picture of the period. Moving on now to challenges. One particular challenge, which is specific to collaborative projects, is differences in ways of keeping records, etc. This is one challenge our project faced, and I, along with the assistance of a research assistant, organised the Australian research we received so as it was consistent with the British research we had undertaken. This was quite time-consuming, but we did not see any other way around it. This perhaps would not have been so much of an issue if the research on both ends had been undertaken at the same time. But unfortunately for our project, the Australian team had pretty much completed all their research before I'd even had the opportunity to start the British research. However, one of the unforeseen benefits of this was that once I received a large proportion of the Australian research, I could try to avoid duplicating that very research. So, I mean, even a disadvantage can be turned into an advantage. So, organisation, organisation, organisation. As a play in former British Prime Minister Tony Blair's Education, Education, Education in 1997, I cannot stress organisation enough. Excel, as I mentioned earlier, really is a godsend. It is such an excellent tool to keep on top of all the research you have to do in a project of this nature. The importance of staying organised, primarily using Excel, was something I learnt during my doctoral research, which compared the rise of multiculturalism in Canada and Australia between the 1890s and 1970s. So this was another vast project which also involved archival research in two very distant places, Canberra and Ottawa. So, I mean, the stage we've reached at at the current point is um, document selection and section editing. Choosing the highly significant documents to include in the section or sections that you're responsible for. Writing an introduction to that section, which will place the documents in some sort of historical context. And adding commentaries in footnotes or reference to documents from which extracts are not included in the chapter, but are still important. And this is something actually I was literally doing just yesterday. And I have to say it's quite rewarding to get to that point after doing all this research and actually see it kind of coming together physically in front of you. And I'm not going to say the selection has been easy. I mean, there's always, you know, too many documents and there's only so many pages in a book. But, you know, you have to use your judgment as best as you can. But, yeah, it's certainly a challenging but rewarding experience on that front. And um, just to end, I just want to talk briefly about other outputs for dissemination. So we have written or plan to write several journal articles on the Dardanelles Commission recruitment conscription and its aftermath, Japan and the Pacific and Versailles. We also intend to publish small pieces in newspapers around significant dates, such as Anzac Day and Remembrance Day over the next few years. Um, The logic behind that being that's when, you know, newspapers will actually have columns devoted to war, kind of memory and history. So that's all I have to say, um, and I thank you very much. This talk was recorded on the 25th of April 2013 at the National Archives, Kew. This talk was sponsored by the Friends of the National Archives. This podcast is copyrighted at the National Archives. All rights reserved.